Hello, this is Aaron Eckhart, and you are listening to Center Stage with Mark Gordon, the beautiful one and only Mark Gordon. Center Stage, Center Stage, Center, Center, Center Stage. Center Stage. Welcome to Center Stage. My name is Mark Gordon. On this show, we're going to talk with one of the masters of horror, Darren Bousman. He's been terrorizing audiences ever since he directed Saw 2. His current film, the psychological thriller Death of Me, follows a couple whose beautiful island vacation turns into a nightmare when they discover a mysterious video of one of them killing the other. You know, knowing that you come from the Saw background, I thought, before I watched it, I thought it's going to be really violent, but it's more, it's more a psychological violence, isn't it? Yeah, you know, one of the things on, you know, maybe it's as I become older uh, and I have kids now, um, you know, the same things that, that used to excite me no longer excite me. And so when I started making movies, it was very much um, gore was the gimmick and I would use the gore to, you know, to further the gimmick of more violence. And I think as I've gotten older, I've stopped kind of doing that. Now I use violence just to help tell the story as opposed to a gimmick. Speaking of horror, you belong to an elite club called the Masters of Horror with yeah. such alumni as uh, Rob Zombie, Neil Marshall, James Wan, and Alexander Aja. I think that's how you pronounce it. And I think Eli Roth is a part of that too, isn't he? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of people now. Um, you know, it started with Mick Garris and Mick Garris is a, uh, you know, a big director who's done a, quite a few of Stephen King's adaptions. I'll tell you the story about that, which is which is which is pretty awesome. Is I got a phone call, and I was told that I was going to meet at this restaurant, and I couldn't invite anyone, and to come alone, and I wasn't allowed to post about it, and I had no idea what I was walking into. And if I remember correctly, and this is years ago, it had been a decade ago, but longer than that, I think I showed up with James Wan. I think it was right when Saw Three came out. It might have been the weekend after that. And I walk in this restaurant and it's hilarious because the restaurant was Hamburger Hamlet. So it's not like we're going to some weird eyes wide shut party in the hills. It's like Hamburger Hamlet. And I walk in and there's Rob Zombie, Guillermo del Toro, Wes Craven, Joe Dante, Mick Garris, John McNaughton, like, like the who's who of the horror world. We're all there. And James and I walked in and they stood up and hugged us and clapped. And we're like, welcome to the Masters of Horror Dinner. It was one of those first moments in my career that I was like, holy shit, what is my life? Well, horror is important for a lot of people. Now, were you a fan of Famous Monsters of Filmland? I was. Um, when I was when I was growing up as a kid, I collected magazines and I, I collected anything that was kind of taboo or off center. So that led me to you know Famous Monsters. It led me to Fangoria, um, as well as like old comic books, old graphic novels that had anything macabre on the front cover of them. I wanted, and I was fascinated with just dark imagery uh, from you know. Frankenstein, Dracula, Freddy Krueger, it didn't matter what it was. If it was something kind of off, I wanted it. I'm sure you frequented the Larry Edmonds bookstore. No, you know, it's funny. So I came to Los Angeles. I missed out on so many cool shit. So I'm very introverted. I, I'm not even joking. A lot of people complain about the pandemic and being forced to stay home. It, it seems like a regular day to me because I just, I stay at home constantly. But I find out about all these amazing things that I'm missing out on that are kind of close to me from amazing horror museums and people's houses that I had no idea existed to these insane bookstores. I've lived a very sheltered life and I kind of regret it. I should get out more. There's the Acker Mansion. Yeah, yeah, that's the one I'm talking about. That was the one that uh, 
I, it's literally like 20 minutes from my house and I feel like such a jackass for not going there. Well, are you friends with, because you, you did a film, you didn't do the film together, but you did a segment of the film, Tales of Halloween with uh, Mike Mendes, uh, did yes. one of the episodes. Mike, yeah, so there's, you know, there's, the horror crowd is a very small crowd. You know, Mendez, if you know Mendez, he's got every single horror action figure ever made, ever created. So going to his house, I guess, is kind of like going to a horror museum. He's got every single figure ever created ever in the world of history. The best thing to happen, if there can be any uh, positive to the pandemic and quarantine, was when he started doing the little short films. The, Those are great. The, with the his, stop with action. His, um, with all his figures. He did that like James Cameron versus the Terminator. Versus, yeah. I mean, they're, they're hilarious. He's, <laughs> he's such a talented guy. Were you a fan of the old Vincent Price films, Dr. Fibes? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I did not see Dr. Fibes until after Saw, and someone told me Dr. Fibes is very Saw-like. No, obviously I'm a fan of Vincent Price. All of those guys, like from Lon Chaney, Vincent Price, Bela Lugosi, I loved old monster movies. You know, when I would grow up and, and stay at my grandparents' house, monster, those old kind of monster movies were a huge thing for me. But Dr. Fibes was not one that I had seen until after Saw, believe it or not. Yeah, he did that whole series in Theater of Blood and uh, finding different ways to kill people in a creative way. I used to go to an old theater and there'd be grindhouse films and my heroes were like Frankenstein and Dracula. But then in the 2000s, we moved into this genre that somebody coined called torture porn. Yeah. And, uh, and Saw kind of fit into that because it was like that notion of torturing people. Um, unfortunately... You were you really were behind the good ones because after <laughs> after four they really started to ramp up the violence. Even with four, it started to get kind of the ultra violence. I mean, the first one saw it did have violence, but it was still a lot of psychological stuff. Yeah, you know, it's funny. James actually busts my balls quite a bit about those movies because. Uh, Saw really wasn't that violent. The first Saw was not. A no. lot of it was played off screen. A lot of it's in your head. A lot of it's just sound design. And then I came in with Saw 2 and I started um, trying to make it a little more and more and more violent. And by the time we got to Saw 4, it was kind of out of control with the buffoonery and ass clownery of just trying to disgust. And it was funny, when I made Saw 3, Eli Roth and I had kind of become friends and, and we had a text message thread well, we were just trying to one-up each other. And that, that's all it was. It was us trying to one-up each other on the violence. And so I would be on set shooting Saw 3. He would be on set shooting Hostel 2. And I would be like, hey, look what I did today. And I'd send him a picture. And he'd be like, well, look what I did today. And then I'd go to the producers and I would say, we're fucked. We got to beat Eli. We got to do something worse than this. So at the very end, it got kind of ridiculous in that whole thing. But I, I do believe that the Saw franchise was more than what a lot of people wrote it off to be, which is just torture porn. Well, it's it's interesting because I was looking at your IMDb page and you've got a, it's a story based on the Book of Saw with Chris Rock. Yeah. It's a franchise that just is not going to go away, is it? No, but I mean, look, you're on your ninth film and now you're getting A-list actors to jump on board. I mean, how crazy is that? You know, it's already crazy enough when you get Chris Rock in a Saw film, but then you get Samuel Jackson. Max Minghella and Marisol Nichols, you know, I just sat there on set and I was like, what is this? This is insane. And I would like to think that only time will tell, but this film is probably my best of all the Saw films, this spiral. Really? Why is that? 
Chris Rock had just a, an interesting, crazy, unique take on it um, about how to, to to make it more unique. So it was Chris's idea. I mean, it was 100% Chris came in and he had an idea and he said, I've got this crazy idea for a Saw movie. You know, I think it needed new blood. And so you've got that new injection with Chris and then you bring back the old familiarity with me and I think it made for some interesting uh, stew. Well, he's really recreating who he is as an actor because now he's also doing Fargo. Yeah, you know, Fargo, I can't, I mean, first off, I'm a, Fargo is, is, is hands down probably my favorite TV show. Oh my God, when they uh, did when they did the first season, I thought, oh, it's, I've already seen the film, but it was so different and so good, Billy Bob Thornton. And then that show is, it's, all seasons have been really good. Yes, I, I agree. And I, I uh, I'm excited about seeing him in this, specifically after working with him, because I've been a fan of his comedy for, you know, since as long as I can remember. But getting to work with him as an actor, I have a whole new appreciation for him and his level of commitment. And this was the first time working with someone of his stature. And I guess that I had preconceived notions of what that would be like, entourages, showing up to set late, all of this, just because that's what I thought, you know, happened when he became that big and could not have been any further from the truth. Or Chris was, you know, the first one on set and he would stand and hang out the entire day and, and sit behind monitor and just make jokes. And it was, it was such a great experience. Well, he's also producing, he produced Spiral too, right? He did. So and, does that... and I'll say really produced, you know, I, it's another one of those terms that kind of gets thrown around a lot about, you know, it's, it's kind of a, sometimes can be a vanity thing for actors. And that was not it with Chris. Um, he was involved in the prep and the screenwriting and the editing, you know, he, his hand is all over it. I like that. Uh, you've done two horror operas. Actually, I, I've done two horror operas and then a short film, which is also a horror opera. So you can actually say I've done three horror operas. I'm a fan of musicals, and it's funny, I just did a podcast a couple weeks back with Joe Dante of, of Gremlins about my love of, of weird 1970s horror musicals, horror rock operas, which I am a, you know, just a huge, 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 huge fan of. Well, yeah, because I looked at, uh, I looked at the, uh, the clips from the, uh, it was the one about uh, the repo. Yes, yeah. And... Um, but also, too, you've got Polly in your film, Paul yeah, Servino. Yeah, Paul Servino's been in, actually, he's been in three of my movies now. And I, I should also mention, I, there was a horrible thing, of, I, I hate when people do this to me. Yeah. It was not just Joe Dante, it was also Josh Olson, who's the person that, that does that podcast. Um, regarding Polly, I have a, had a funny story with Paul Servino, and I, I, I think enough time has passed that he wouldn't mind me telling this story. So Paul and I did not get along on Repo, the genetic opera, at all. I tried to have him fired in the first couple of days and he tried to quit after that and it was this we were we were at each other's throat constantly on that and i think that about midway through halfway through the shoot of repo it clicked and we started getting each other i knew how to work with him he knew how to talk to me and he was so he just he he terrified me because he's not only played a mafia guy in goodfellas He's played it throughout his career, yeah. uh, the firm, uh, yes. the Tom Cruise movie with Tobin Bell. Um, he's, he's played he's played the tough guy for a while. So maybe I was just concerned that that's who he was. But he was the first person that I showed Repo to when I completed it because I knew he was going to be my toughest critic. And I said, Paul, I want to show this to you. And I think I shared it to him in New York. He came in. It was only him in the theater. It was just him. He watched the movie and the movie ended and he was silent and he was just sitting there. And I was like, he's going to kill me. He's going to shoot me. He hates it. And he he stands up. He stares at me and he hugs me. He just hugs me. 
and he goes, I am so sorry. He was like, I didn't understand what you were doing. He was like, this will never happen again. He's like, I will be in any movie you ask me to, whenever you ask me to do it, I'm there. And we've done three projects now together. And he's fantastic in Repo. I mean, as those that know Polly Walnuts know, he's an opera singer. <laughs> and so I gave him the chance to sing opera and do it in a cool way. He's an interesting character, and he, in some respects, is a caricature of himself, which I love about him. Well, you also um, had Sarah Brightman in the film. She's a powerhouse. Um, yeah. I mean, she's Sarah fucking Brightman. She yeah. was Christine in Phantom of the Opera. Oh, yeah. And she allowed herself to lend her talents to my, you know, little little rock opera. So she was, uh, it was it, I was lucky to get her in that. It was, it still doesn't even seem real that she was in it. I mean, it looks a little campy, too, so it looks a lot of fun, but then it does have that element, that dark, violent element to it. Yeah, it was definitely, um, I wanted to do something much different coming off of Saw, so I did it after Saw 4, and I wanted to, you know, just just try something different. And so I knew that it had to have horror in it, and it. I my favorite movies uh, growing up were Rocky Horror Picture Show, Tommy, Jesus Christ Superstar, Phantom of the Paradise. They were over the top, very flamboyant in, in their kind of approach, heavily theatrical. And that's what that's what Repo is. Yeah, you can see that. I, that's the first I thought of Phantom of the Paradise, which I loved. Yeah, it was so um, that was Paul Williams that wrote that, right? Yes, yes, yes. But it was just the way that it was done. And yeah, also, I could see glimpses of Rocky Horror Show. There's the one scene where you have the skeletons dancing. and They're like stuffed animals dancing in the background. With Alexa Vega, who's who's known for the Spy Kids movie, she does this song with Joan Jett, uh, where her stuffed animals and everything comes alive in a room. The other opera was was it the Devil's Carnival? Yeah, so I did two of those. The first one was a short film. When I say short, it was sixty minutes, but it was that also had Paul Servino playing the role of God, um, and it was it was kind of my first foray into what became as my religious horror films. I made uh, Devil's Carnival one and two, all about. Um, kind of the devil and God warring out over souls. And in our movie, the God is kind of the villain and the devil is kind of the hero. And so I did those two films. And then I went on to do a movie called Abattoir, which was which was about religion and, and about a man trying to go into hell to pull his family out. Then St. Agatha, which was a religious film. And now The Death of Me, which is not necessarily a religious film, but it's a film about faith. I don't know why I'm just really fascinated with that kind of subgenre of, of films. Well, it's it's this whole notion of uh, cultural superstitions. Yes. Now, the thing that was fascinating about that film is it you don't really know it, it doesn't reveal its hand really until the end of the film, and yeah, it's very unsettling because well, I, those are my favorite types of movies. I hate movies that try to preach to you, basically telling you this is what's happening, this is what it is. Yeah. So when we went out to make this, we said it was it was important to me to have it be ambiguous until the very ending and and even in the ending not really push on the supernatural element as much. So you know, upon a rewatch, I, I give the audience two pathways they can go down. Supernatural or um, explainable and the explainable this is a spoiler for those that haven't seen the movie the supernatural is she's she's seeing these premonitions of these witch-like creatures that are doing these weird um, rituals on her and the explainable is she's being drugged and manipulated by the town by this drug called namun pry and uh, so you have this whole thing where throughout the entire movie you see her drinking things and eating things and taking medications and then going to these hallucinations that may or may not be supernatural 
So I, again, I love giving the audience that out if they want it. The film also preys upon this notion that Americans aren't safe to travel. Like foreign countries are, are dangerous. And well, then there's also a little bit of Rosemary's Baby in the film too. Well, the Rosemary's Baby is a huge influence. I, I love I love Rosemary's Baby. It's one of my favorites. In fact, that probably would say is my favorite movie, that and Wicker Man. And I think you can oh. see elements of both in this. One of my things about this movie, which is, it, again, it's it's a subtle it's a subtle turn, but I, I like it. Is in the very end in my and again, this is a major spoiler. It's kind of as Maggie the villain in this, and the villagers are the heroes in in the way, or at least the the justified ones. So the, the premise is, you know, what this village is trying to do based on a belief they have and a faith that they have, and it poses a question: Is one death worth saving a thousand? Possibly saving a thousand. And this whole movie, you have Maggie kind of fighting back and defiant and trying to save herself and get get the fuck off this island while these people are trying to convince her, don't do this, you don't understand, we're all going to die here unless this happens. So we wanted to try to kind of spin it in the very end that, and why I think I love movies like Wicker Man, the, the people in Wicker Man aren't bad, they're not evil, they're doing what they have to do to preserve their way of life. And if you go back to the dawn of religion, back in the very earliest time, sacrifice was a major part of them. And so in this case, it just happens to be that Maggie is that sacrifice. But her sacrifice could possibly save thousands of lives. So I just, I, I love playing around in that kind of world. What got you into horror? I mean, have you always been attracted to the horror genre? Yeah, since I was a, you know, I remember my fondest memories as a kid was um, weekends with my dad. Uh, my parents lived together. I don't mean like I went to stay with him on weekends, but weekends was the time that we would go to Blockbuster and he would let me pick out a movie. And inevitably, I would always end up in the fantasy, sci-fi, or horror uh, section of Blockbuster. And in, in that time, it was before, you know, the oversaturation of movies and the accessibility of movies. Back then, if you wanted to watch something, you had to rent it. Um, or you had to wait for it to come on HBO. And so being a Midwesterner, I wasn't exposed to, I didn't go to the movies a ton, but but I did go to Blockbuster a ton. And so I would always go to the horror thing and I'd pick out Elvira movies or I'd pick out Gremlins or I'd pick out, you know, this kind of darker, darker fare just based on the box title and the box art. And, uh, you know, I know that my my dad and I always had this thing that we'd watch a, a scary movie on, you know, Saturday nights. He was really cool. They both my parents are very cool about there was no real restrictions on what I could watch. Uh, no, they would not let me go watch some hard, hard R whatever. But you know, I was watching Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th at a, at a really young age. But I think my introduction into it all was was Elvira. Or you know what it was? It was Tales from the Crypt. Those old anthology TV shows. Uh, when I was at my grandparents' house, I remember always watching Alfred Hitchcock Presents, which I loved. Uh, those macabre things. And then that just kind of led into more nefarious fare the older I got. What is the biggest challenge in making a horror film? Not coming across cheesy, not coming across cliched. It's easy to roll your eyes at something. I mean, here's the hardest thing for me as a filmmaker, and there's a big difference, I think, my answer now than it was years ago. You have like an, an example like Mother's Day, or not Mother's Day, but... Um, uh, which that was another one of your films, which I really yeah, enjoyed. Mother, no, I was going to say Mother's Day is one of my favorites of mine, but uh, on a movie like The Death of Me, 
to something like Mother's Day, to something like Spiral, those are three completely different experiences. Could not be further from a from a filmmaking standpoint. You know, something like Spiral, the pressure on me, knowing that I have superstars in it. Uh, Mother's Day was the biggest budget movie you ever did. Knowing the budget that was at line on something like Mother's Day or something like Death of Me where I had no money and no time and having to make a movie. But those three films are all judged in the same way. Do I tell a compelling story? Because an audience won't know that I had 45 days to shoot Spiral, nor will they know I only had 19 days to shoot Death of Me or 20 days to shoot Death of Me. It just has to be, it's a movie good. So I think when you jump in any movie, there's that anxiety on, can I tell this story with the resources I have and will an audience care? And, uh, you know, the older I've got, the the less resources in some respects I get because they just don't, movies, movies aren't the budgets they used to be a lot of times. I thought that the more movies I made and the older I got, the more money I would have and the more time I have. That's, that's not true at all. So in something like Death of Me, it was probably the least amount of money I've had and the least amount of time, but it'll be judged the, in the exact same way that something like Spiral will, which I had a lot more time. So I think that's, to me, one of the most anxiety what makes me the most anxious about being a filmmaker. Were um, you planning to release these films earlier? Because you have yeah. uh, you have three. You have, what is it, Tension, Spiral, and Death of Me. Uh, were they yes, all in the, the can before tension the... Is, uh... Tension's, I'm about to start filming that one. Uh, oh, okay. We were supposed to start at April 1, and the pandemic happened. Yeah. Um, the Death of Me was filmed two years ago. It was filmed in 2018. Uh, right after Death of Me, I got Spiral. And I think that the original plan is they wanted to hold death of me until oops hold on one second sorry uh that is actually the writer of mother's day calling me um, oh really i think that the uh original idea was for them to hold death of me until spiral came out because of course why wouldn't you want to do that because that that just benefits everyone oh hold on one second i'm trying to okay that ended up obviously not happening and i don't think anyone wanted to wait any longer so this movie got released but originally this was supposed to come out after do you think, um, I mean, has the the pandemic really uh, cramped your style or are you still made it, It's made it harder. Um, yeah. I have two kids, uh, I have two dogs and I have a very angry wife and they're all, it's like a hot box in here of just uh, anxiety and anger <laughs> it and is, nerves. It is, you are, you are in Saw, you're trapped. I, I am, it's, this is Saw trap. I, you know, we, I'm very paranoid about, about COVID, probably more so than most people. I just, I... I'm already a recluse and yeah. then I have I have asthma and I have bronchitis. I have adults. I had adult onset asthma, I have chronic bronchitis, I had pneumonia last year. So I am very not wanting to leave anyway. So it's been insane having the kids here and doing school learning here uh, while promoting a movie, prepping a movie and then I have another I have another Halloween experience that I'm doing called uh, One Day Die that I'm doing here as well. So it's been I don't think I've ever been busier. And I've never been more claustrophobic and confined than these last few months. No, I'm the same way. I get in and I just go, I can't leave the house. My car has cobwebs on it. Well, yeah, I, I don't. I very so rarely drive. What's worse, though, I mean, everything's worse. I mean, it's just a dumpster fire of a of, a, of the last year <laughs> from 
you know, from the deaths that have occurred to the co and I'm not talking, I'm talking about deaths of people that for some reason have affected me. Uh, no, well, Stuart Gordon. Deaths. I'm did, talking about did you know uh, people in the media, people in the news, celebrities. Then you had COVID, which is like, that doesn't even seem real to me. It seems so far-fetched and crazy. Yeah. And every day you look at the number and we're at 200,000. Yeah. And you're like, okay, it can't get worse than that. And then they're like, nope, we're going to set lost. We're going to set all of California and port. We're going to set everything on fire. Then you're looking at riots and racial injustice, and it just doesn't seem real. It just none of it seems real. Yeah, sometimes I would just sit at my computer because I'm putting together a book on interviews that I've done over the years. And yeah. I, I have this whole section on horror films. And I sit there and I go, why even write it? The world's coming to an end. It feels that way. It absolutely does. It just feels like a fucking joke. It's just like the moment you're like, I can't get any worse. Nope. Like I remember it was, it was a true story and it was, it, it, you can't help but laugh at it. But I was bitching and lamenting to a friend of mine about this dumpster fire and I, of, the, of, of the time. And I literally said, it's not like it can get any worse. We are at rock bottom. And as I'm saying the word rock bottom, an earthquake hit. When was that? Four days ago. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, of course. Of course it fucking hit. Of course. Because that's, that's what happens in 2020. I've got an angry cat that I live with, and she she's she screams all the time. Yes, uh, we have two dogs. Oh, and that's the other thing is it's the small things now that are setting me off. Because oh yeah, I also have you know two dogs here, and you know it's something something as simple as um, two dogs, two kids, a wife in this house, and we're going on six months now, seven and a half months. Yeah, uh, it's just uh, it's just rough, and it just, seems like there's no end in sight. Yeah. It's, uh, it's crazy. Well, God, it is I mean, its, own, it's its own horror film. It is. So you, you must feel right at home. I mean, you've yep. done, you've had such a great career. What do you think is the best thing that has happened to you in your career? I have had the ability to do multiple passion projects that most people, you know, most people work their entire career to be able to do the passion project. I am able to go do my passion project, uh, again and again and again. So first off, I'm 25 years old and, and I'm able to make a movie like Saw 2, which that doesn't happen, but it happened for me at 25 years old. And then at 29, I said, I'm going to go make my passion project. I'm going to go make Repo. And I got to make Repo. Then I was like, no, I want to move to Japan. I want to go to Japan and work. And I was able to go shoot a Japanese TV series in all, in all Japanese. Like, that's insane. And then I got back and I was like, I'm going to take a break and I want to go do immersive theater. And I was a huge fan of immersive theater. And I was able to go off and do immersive theater. So the fact that I have been able to continually do what I want to do is pretty awesome. Because that doesn't happen a lot. What do you contribute to your success? Not talent. I'll tell you that right now is that, and this is this is something I say to to filmmakers and, and people that, that want to be directors or writers or um, I think I have 20% talent. It's it's that. I just want 20%. But the rest of it, the rest of it is tenacity and the ability to get back up because the majority of my life, I am a failure. I am a failure every time I write a screenplay or go out to direct a movie because for every Saw 2, there's 30 movies before that that I didn't get made. For every screenplay that I sell, there's 99 that weren't made that I was passed on. I was told the writing's terrible. The difference is that I kept getting back up and kept writing and kept trying to pitch movies. And so after the 99th one, I get the next movie. So it is that I just get right back up. And I think that that is, um, that's what it is, is I just keep getting back up. And, uh, you know, I went to film school with, with people that were a lot more talented than I was. 
but they gave up. They got told or rejected three or four or five times, and that hurts. That stings. And they would say, you know what? Fuck this. I'm going to go be a real estate agent. I'm going to go be a lawyer. And uh, they're successful in those jobs. I got told no 99 times, and I said, fuck it. Let's go for 100. And that 100th time became the movie that, uh, that happened. Well, you sound passionate. And uh, I think that's what's ultimately important. What was it yeah. that uh, James Wan saw in you? To uh, Because really, that was a pivotal thing to get the Saw franchise, and it's really helped your career tremendously, haven't it? Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know. I think, I think that they all, first off, Twisted Pictures and Lionsgate took a chance on a first-time filmmaker. James had never done anything. Um, that was that was his first thing. His, I mean, he'd done some short films, but that was his first thing. And I think that when I came along, I was in a lot of the same boat. I had I had a vision, I had passion, but I never done I never had anything. So I think that for him and all the producers, it was that they thought maybe they can get lightning in a bottle twice by trying to fulfill or maybe to do the same formula. And that's what it that's what it was. It was the first time director and I had everything to gain. And I, I think they gave me that shot. Thank you so much for taking time to, uh, to do the interview and best of luck with Death of Me and uh, your future projects. I appreciate it. Nice talking to you. Death of Me is currently streaming on Prime Video. Until next time, this is Mark Gordon, and I'll see you center stage. Center stage, center stage, center, center, center stage. Center stage. Hello, this is Homer Simpson. Whenever I want to know what's going on in the entertainment world, I listen to Center Stage with Mark Gordon. <laughs> For more on Center Stage, visit stageandscreen.com. And hey, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast.